We smile at the naivety of worshiping the forces of nature and thinking that gods rule over certain regions. But who do we worship in the modern world? Dave Wurtzen, our Truth Encounter study leader, turns our attention to the oneness and the threeness of God, beginning with some discussion about polytheism in the ancient world, and then shows how this is not only ancient idolatry. Last night, I got a telephone call, and a dear brother began to pour his life because his family, his marriage, had just fallen apart. And that's not outside the family of faith. And my heart was just ripped in two, like many of your hearts have been ripped in two. And I hear basically the same old story. The idea is I don't like the way things are going now. I don't like what's happening. And, and there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anger. And it just can't keep going on like this. And so I'm out of here. And in 21 years of ministering, I hear that again and again and again. I hear constantly the idea, I'm not happy. My needs are not being met. I'm miserable. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. My wife's a jerk. My husband's a jerk. We don't get along. We made a mistake many years ago. We're gone. What I want you to understand, I want you to begin to focus on that, is what kind of decisions are you making? And time and time again, I have, I have someone tell me this, that I know God's word says that we need to be committed to each other. I know that God's word says that we need to make marriages work. I, I know that God's word says that families are important, but, 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 I'm happy, unhappy. And I'm not ever going to be happy in the situation I am now. And this other person makes me so happy. So what I'd like you to begin to think about today, because I guarantee you, all of you are going to face that spirit where that you have a tremendous pull in your life that pulls you to walk in to make a decision, to make some, some actions in life that will be opposed to what God's word teaches you. And if you are, have a God in your life or a goddess in your life called the goddess of self or the God of self, then you're going to end up making the wrong decision. What I want to talk to you about tonight, today is a very important thing. I want to talk to you about God. I want to talk to you about his nature. And I want you to think about the, the tremendous revelation that we have in that God is one. And just to help you to, to really understand, what, what ought to, which for a lot of us is kind of an abstract theological idea, I want you to pretend for a minute that you are Egyptians, living back, say, 4,000 years ago. And let's imagine, how many of you have had a fever this week? Anybody had a fever this week? If you were living in ancient Egypt, if you were living in ancient Egypt, what you would do is you would call out to the god Asclepius. Now, Asclepius was a, a renowned Egyptian. In fact, he was one of the, one of the healers in one of the pharaoh's courts. And, and he probably be, was one of the early founders of medicine as we know it today. He was able to learn some herbs and some things that different plants would do in Egypt. And he became renowned for his healing ability. And so, as he died... He kind of was like the Elvis routine. They wouldn't let him die. They kept bringing him back. And the Egyptians started to worship Asclepius as the god of healing. And so in Egypt, if you were an Egyptian, you would read documents that supposedly came from Asclepius and you would try to follow his healing techniques. But I got news for you. If you traveled north and went across the Sinai Peninsula and you traveled up into Canaan, guess what? Asclepius didn't have jurisdiction in the land of Canaan. You see, the gods of the ancient world were located in particular places. 
And just kind of like our law enforcement officers in today's world, when you moved across state line or country lines, they no longer were in effect. So when you went to Canaan, if you ran a fever in Canaan, you had to call upon another God. You had to get another name. You had to get another series of rituals. You needed to get another series of priests. And you'd pray to another God. In fact, probably in Canaan, probably two or three gods that would have to do with whether you had a stomach ailment or a fever or whether you had a toothache and all kinds of stuff like that. And I got news for you too, if you traveled further north and went over to Babylon, then again in Babylon you would pray to a different God. Some of you have wrestled with infertility. Some of you had no problem at all with that. When you got married, you just started pumping the kids out. But some of you have really wrestled with the agony of fertility, of infertility. And some of you have prayed, well in ancient Egypt, in ancient Egypt you would pray to a particular God of fertility. And you would ask that goddess in Egypt to meet your need. And you'd probably grind up some rhinoceros horns or something like that. And, and, and you would probably take some weird concoctions to try to make you fertile. But I got news for you. If you went to Canaan, you'd have to pray to another goddess. In this case, you'd pray to Ashtart, uh, which is a goddess that probably most of you have heard from. Because you know that the Israelites ended up worshipping Ashtart. But in Canaan, you would pray to Ashtart and some of her consort. Consorts like Anat and, and different other gods. And if you went to Babylon, you'd pray to some other gods. And so what I want you to begin to think about, if you had a stomachache, if you had, some of you have had financial difficulty, let's get off the health thing. What about some of you that had really got worried about paying your bills this week? Can you imagine living in Babylon where you had to figure out which God should you pray to, which goddess should you pray to, which temple should you go to? These cities in the ancient world were filled with all kinds of temples and all kinds of different religionists that were representing all different kinds of God because in the ancient world, throughout the ancient Near East, there were hundreds upon thousands of gods. And that's why I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Today we need to begin with one of the heartbeats of the book of Deuteronomy. And I want you to feel the lightning bolt, the flash of radiant illumination that these words from God brought into the human race under his prophet Moses. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is the heartbeat of the Jewish faith. If any of you have Jewish friends, if you want to impress them with your knowledge of how much you've read up on their Jewish faith, then you need to tell them this week that you learned about the Shema. You learned about, let's listen. That's what Shema means. It it means, please listen. Now look at verse 4 because it begins with, Hear, hear, O Israel. I love the teachers of Scripture because they, they understand human nature. They know that on the average Sunday morning audience that you're, li- you're thinking about a million different things. Some of you are fighting whether or not you can overcome your work schedule this week and whether or not you can stay awake. And some of you are, are, are just really struggling to pay attention. You're like students in school, in elementary school, who they look out the window and their mind goes a million miles away. And so when the Bible wants to get something across really important to you, it often stops and says, listen, hear. And that's what God is doing here. He says, I want you to listen here, O Israel. And I believe God is saying to us, listen here, O believer. Now, what does God want us to listen to? Listen to this. The Lord, and the word there, the Lord, is Yahweh. This is the one we learned about in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Moses said to him, when I go down to Egypt and try to carry out your command, who should I say sent me? What is your name? And God says, Yahweh, I am. He says, in fact, in Hebrew, he says, Hayah, Asher, Hayah. He says, I am what I am. I am that I am. 
I am, and we studied that together. God was claiming, I, I'm a person, and I am the eternally existent personal God. And what the Lord is saying here is, Yahweh, in English, Jehovah, Jehovah, the Lord God. The second word there is the word that's used for the Almighty God. The ultimate one that's behind it all. The Elohim. It's the one that is the Almighty One, the powerful one, the one that in, the, in Genesis chapter 1 says, let there be light, and there's light. All the way through Genesis chapter 1, we have the stress upon the Creator God. That's the word Elohim. And what God reveals is that the Lord God is, and then he makes an incredible statement, he's one. He is one. And with that, with just like that, all the idols, all the false gods throughout the ancient world come crashing down. Marduk of Babylon. There were days when the Babylonian soldiers marched in the battle with emblems of Marduk on their shields and on their banners flying. And they conquered in the name of Marduk. And Moses is saying, Marduk is nothing. Marduk is an empty concept. Marduk doesn't have any power. And across the universe, across across all of reality, Moses is saying under the revelation of God, there is no idol that amounts to anything. All the idols, all the gods of Egypt, all the gods of Mesopotamia, all the gods of Canaan, they are false because there is only one God. I want you to think about that. What we are learning today, here, O Israel, here, believers, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is in a class by himself. There is no other God. In other words, when you get to the ultimate throne room of ultimate reality, when you get into that place called the divine, when you get into ultimate infinity, when you get to to what we need to adore and worship, there is only one person. There's only one being that I need to use that word being. There's only one being that is in that place. He is one. And polytheism, the worship of many gods, comes crashing down. You say, well, Dave, well, I, I've never even heard of Marduk hardly, except on Sunday morning when you mention him from time to time. And Asclepius, man, I would never know to pray to Asclepius. Listen, Dave, to be honest with you, my problem today is not idolatry. My problem today is not worshiping Marduk or Asclepius. Man, that's not my problem at all. Oh, yes, it is. Because I find it's my problem. You see, we don't have names, particular names for our gods like Marduk and Asclepius and Ashtart. But I want you to stop for a minute. Are you, in your heart, fully devoted to the one God? Because Moses goes on and lays out the whole groundwork of the Old Testament relationship between God and man. Because God says after he declared, I am one, he says, therefore you shall love me, you shall choose me, you'll be devoted to me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. You see, what idolatry is, is when someone else has our heart, or something else has our heart. And I think back over my own life. Yesterday kind of took me back in time a little bit because we were gathering around the country and there was a tournament over in Red Oak and Joshua was playing over there. And it took me back into the world of middle school. Back in the world only. We called it junior high school back then. And as I watched Josh play, and that's one of the neat things that a daddy gets to do, you get to go back and think about what you were doing when you were in eighth grade. And I remember being in eighth grade, just like some of you guys here. I remember being in seventh grade. Man, in seventh grade, I lived, I lived to be the first string quarterback. And I've told you that. I mean, that's what I live for. 
I can remember throwing footballs hour after hour after hour, after trees, after swinging tires, after friends. I mean, I got so I could knock my friends over throwing forward passes. Man, I threw and threw and threw and threw. Because, man, by the time I got to be in the eighth grade, I wanted to really beat somebody. I wanted to be important. And I'll never forget, by the time we got in eighth grade, man, I had finally made it. Man, I was the first string quarterback, and I remember playing a great big Roman Catholic school and for, the, for this whole citywide championship. And, man, we thought we were something. Man, we came into eighth grade, we're swaggering in. Man, we were really somebody. We worshipped that. That's what we lived for. If my mom and dad would have asked me, man, what's really important for you? Man, I would say, man, it's winning that game. Well, you laugh about that now. Some of you older ones have already started smiling. The same thing carried over in the high school. I remember, man, in high school, boy, in my junior year, the big thing was to do the same thing, you know, to finally make it in another place and be the first string quarterback and be able to walk into those classrooms and, and have my big D on my, on, my, on my sweater and everyone be able to look at that and go, wow, you know, there it is, the first string quarterback. That's really important. That's God. That's an idol. That's an idol. There's nothing wrong with playing ball. There's nothing wrong with being really competitive. Hopefully there is, because I'm still really competitive. But I want you to know something. There's something really wrong when you hold your life together by thinking in your heart, man, I am really important. I am a valuable person. I have meaning because I play first-string quarterback. You know why that's a, that's a lousy idol? You know why that's a lousy thing to hold your, your life together with? Because I want the kids to know it, I want you adults to know, and every one of you adults already know it, is who cares? Now that I'm in my 40s, who cares? I haven't thrown a football in ages, except when I play catch with my kids. Who cares? You see, it's just not a good God. It just doesn't last. Let me change gear a little bit. I remember another thing that would really make me important, really make me God, you know, really make me the valuable person. And that was if I could, if I could say that this girl that was the number one cheerleader was my girlfriend, so that when I went to a party in my senior year in high school, when I walked into that party, that number one cheerleader would be my girlfriend, and that would make me important. That's idolatry. In fact, I flipped a coin with my right hand over which one of us would get to do that with what we thought was the number one good-looking cheerleader. Really in love, you know, in, in seniors in high school, flipping coins over a girl. But what we were saying as young men, what really makes us important, what really makes us valuable, what really makes us a man is if I can walk into a room and all my friends go, wow, look at what they're able to get. They're really somebody. They're important. That's idolatry, brothers and sisters. You know, the tragedy of that idolatry is some of us never grow up out of it. I I work almost every single week with a man that acts just like I acted when I was 17 and 18. Thinking that what what really makes me important as a man, what really makes me valuable as a man, is whether or not I can snag that woman that looks just like in the magazines. And whether or not all my friends will covet what I have. And that's idolatry. And I want you to know that that's a spirit of of false worship. That's what it's about, friend. And it's in the recesses of your mind. It's in, it's in that spooky, dark area that often isn't exposed when we gather together and study God's Word, but it's so important. And what, I'm, what I want to bring out to you is that we all have different idols, all different things that we live for. It can be your career. You can say, man, if only I get that job, if only I can get that important possession, if only I can climb to the top of my corporation and, and I can have all those secretaries you know, at my beck and call and, and I can have that car and, and I can be able to do that traveling, then I'm really going to be something. Those are idols. An idol is anything in your life that you believe will hold your life together. 
It's what you choose. It's what's deep in your soul that, that you feel makes, makes it worth getting up into the morning, in, in the morning, as I often tell you. And what Moses was telling us in the ancient world, is it's the same message in the modern world. He's saying there is only one ultimate being who can satisfy your soul. There's only one being. Hear, O Israel, hear, my fellow believer. There is only one that can meet your needs. There is only one who deserves your love. There is only one that deserves you to ultimately respond to him. And he is the living God. That's what it means. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Is he the one in your heart? Is he the one in my heart? That's not just a given. I want to share with you from my heart about the process that I go through in this relationship with God. Because I know some of you wrestle with that. Some of you, you know, you come into a service like on a Sunday morning like this. And sometimes, you know, you're having a hard time. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Did you stop and think and let that reality come into your life? Did you ever stop and think about what you're saying? He is at the right hand of God right now. Do you believe that? He is the one that's been crowned with many crowns. And one day we're going to be able to be able to cast our crown at his feet. Did you let that reality permeate your soul? Or are are you like me often? You just say the words and you play the instruments and, and you go through the motions, but you don't connect. That's what we can do in all of life. We can do it in our marriages. You can live together with your partner for, for months on end and never really connect. Never let your hearts respond to one another. Never let your eyes really meet. Never let love really flow. That's what starts to happen to us. And, I, and what I want to get across to you today is that it begins when you start getting cold in your walk with God. It's when you start living for idols. When you, when you don't believe that God is one, that he is the one. And it begins to make you cold. I find it's often on vacation when I can do it. I shared with you the last time we were together about skiing in Taos. One of the things that I have a pass, as a pastor when I go on vacation is, man, let's get away from this spiritual stuff. You say, David, you can't do that. Man, that's not the way preachers should be. Oh, yes, they are. I know a lot of preachers, man, as soon as they leave and as soon as they get away, man, they want to drop everything spiritual because it's such a burden to them. And it's kind of an ego thing. Instead of of doing it by grace so there's freedom and joy, there's all this pressure, so they want to get away from underneath it. And I have that emotion in me. So we're riding to Taos, and what I'm thinking about, man, one of my idols is I live as a man for the exciting thrill. In fact, one of the idols that I have, one of the things that makes me really feel alive is, man, I don't want to just ski a green. I want to ski a double diamond black that's a little bit harder than I should really ski on because it's right on the edge because, man, I am really pumping and I am really excited when there's a little bit of danger and it takes a little bit of real powerful competitive skill to pull it off. I love that. That's why I like rock climbing. Rock climbing is even better than skiing. Man, you get up and, man, when, when, you, when you slip about 250 feet up in the air, and, man, that six inches that you slip on that, that free fall for just six inches or a foot until you get caught by your belt, that six inches is one of the most exciting happenings in life. And a lot of you men know what I'm talking about. Your wives don't understand it, but you men understand. Your wives are constantly trying to keep you from killing yourself. But that can become an idol when I live for that. In other words, I can go on a vacation and say, man, this is going to really make me alive. And so as we're riding in the car, John says, Dave, why don't you read to us something from the Psalms? So every day as we ride the 40 minutes from Red River to Taos, 
we get out the Psalms and we begin to read about God. And then we just pray on the way, just different ones, just praying with our eyes open, just talking with God, and different ones would say, Dear God, man, look at these mountains, how beautiful it is. And it's incredible that you can make that beautiful sky with the sun coming up over the east. And it just awes me today that, that you're my Savior, that you love me. And John says something, says, isn't it neat that you're going to ski with us today, Lord Jesus, because you live in my life. You're inside of me, so you're going to enjoy this with us. You see how different that is from isolating yourself from God? And what I want you to know is I want to be very honest with you. You go back and forth just like I do. There's times when you're cold. Don't you feel a little thud in your heart sometimes to try to get you not to do that? Something that tries to keep you from being expressive in your relationship with God? And what I want you to realize is the way that you beat back idolatry is you don't give in to that hardness. You don't give in to that separation. And you reaffirm your intimacy with God and you include him in a natural way, in a beautiful way, in the flow of your everyday life. And that's what it means to make him the one. To make him the one. The one that's never, never forgotten. You say, well, Dave, that's an Old Testament passage. Man, what about the New Testament? What does the New Testament say? There's a marvelous passage in 1 Corinthians 8 where the Apostle Paul uh, talks about this business of the oneness of God versus the polytheism of his world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he's dealing with a very idolatrous people. Turn there in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The very first thing that we begin to talk about, the, the doctrine of the Trinity... The, of the understanding of, of the being of God and, and how he expresses himself to us and who he is, is to understand the oneness of God, which is the hero of Israel. Our God is one. The belief in monotheism, one God. In 1 Corinthians 8, we have a New Testament declaration of exactly what I've been talking to you about. And Paul begins there like this. Now about food sacrificed to idols. You see, in his culture that he was running to in Corinthians, there was all kinds, there was, there was hundreds of gods in Corinth. In fact, Mary and I have, tra- have been at the ruins of Corinth, and you can see all the, the different temples of that city, and you can see the marketplace where every night you could go and buy all this meat that was offered to idols. And you have already heard some of this presented, I'm sure, but for some of you that haven't, there was a big controversy in the first century church about this meat that was, that was sold in the marketplace that earlier in the day had been sacrificed to these gods. And so Paul is trying to enter in and help this family of believers to understand what's going on, to help them to know what's the right thing to do about this meat that's been offered to idols. And in doing so, he communicates some very important thing to us, things to us about, about our knowledge of God, about the reality of what idols really are and what they're not. And then he also lays out the foundation of what we want to develop in the coming times together about understanding three in one. The one God who reveals himself in three persons. Very, the great mystery of the Trinity. But it's right here in 1 Corinthians 8 in the flow of a very practical discussion that dealt with a very serious issue in the first century church about meat being offered to idols. He says, now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. As I look at you today as I'm teaching you, it's a thrilling thing to know that a lot of you possess knowledge. You've been able to grow in your understanding of the word of God. You possess knowledge. One of, the, one of the gifts of a Bible church is knowledge. The knowledge of God. It's a very important thing to have accurate knowledge of God. 
to have right thoughts about God is a very precious thing. But I want you to see a warning that the Apostle Paul gives. He says, we know that we all possess knowledge. But then he says this, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. I want to say that again. It's a heartbeat, that's the beginning heartbeat of what we need to understand. Because as we talk about the Trinity, we're going to talk about one of the most deep things in all of theology, the study of God. In fact, all the great theologians, Augustine, Calvin, have all tried to enter in to help us understand the Trinity, and none of them have been able to do it because it's a great mystery. But we can learn some very important things about it. But it's possible that knowledge can puff us up. In fact, it's possible for me to teach you on Sunday morning and you get the right ideas. I mean, you learn the truth that I realize there's one ultimate divine being. There's one essential being of God that reveals himself in three distinct personalities. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you can have it all orthodox and all right. But it's possible it'll just make you prideful. It's possible it'll just make you hit a Jehovah's Witness over the head and clobber them with the truth that you know. Because knowledge can puff up. But love builds others up. I'll never forget when I began doctoral studies with Dr. Bruce Walke, who had straight A's at Harvard University and one of the most brilliant men I've ever studied with. In the very first day of class in doctoral studies, Dr. Walke looked at seven of us guys that were beginning our our doctoral program. And almost with tears in his eyes, he said, you know, guy, he says, I'm scared for you over the next two or three years. Because I want you to know that I'm going to take your brain and I'm going to stretch them farther than they've ever been stretched before. In fact, there's going to be time when you're probably going to cry because you're not going to think you can handle it. You're not going to think you can make it. And I'm going to try to pour into you the knowledge that, that the Lord has given to me. I want to pour into you the skills that I have and I want to try to help you to develop the skills that God has given you. And it's going to involve imparting knowledge. He said, when you get done with this program, you're going to be educated, whatever that means. You're going to know something. And you're also going to know what you don't know. But he said, you know, the danger of that, the thing that scares me is that you could become very prideful. And your doctorate degree could become one of the worst things that's ever happened to you. And then he pointed out this verse. He says, love, knowledge can puff up. It can make you prideful. It can make you think you're somebody. And instead of being a person of love, you become a person of pride and self and just thinking about who you are. And this knowledge can become an idol. This quest for knowledge and this quest for information become an idol. And Dr. Walkie looked at us and said, I want you to always remember that God wants us to use our knowledge as a servant to build others up so it becomes an expression of love. The Apostle Paul models that probably better than any other human being in the early church. And oh, it's so important for us to remember. One of the things I want want you to do is don't divorce your head from your heart. I'm talking to you on one level and your head's. In fact, we'll talk about some things that will probably stretch you and push you, and we'll be doing that in the next few weeks. But I want you not just to get it in your head. I want you to also let your heart respond from your heart. Love. Be devoted. Let the truth, let the the knowledge, the accurate understanding of the Word of God get down into your soul and respond to it in praise and thanksgiving and in love. That's what Paul is so concerned with the Corinthians. The Corinthians were the most knowledgeable church in the first century. But often they use their knowledge as a sledgehammer to hurt others and to put others down rather than living sensitively, caring about what other people's consciences were and what their feelings were and what, where they were coming from. And so Paul warns us, knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. 
The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. Someone that thinks they know it all doesn't know yet. In fact, the more that I say the word of God, one of the things I notice as a pastor teacher, it gets harder and harder in some ways to speak on Sunday morning because I don't think I really know what I need to know. That wasn't true about 20 years ago. Man, especially my sophomore year at seminary, I mean, I was ready to preach to the world then. But one of the things that happens when you really start to enter into what you're really dealing with and you start to understand how infinite God is and how incredible he is, you realize that none of us really know. All of us just see through a glass darkly. And that produces a humility that makes us teachable. And I want you to pray that my heart and your heart will always be filled with big ears that are always ready to learn more. That we'll never feel that we got a, we got a corner on the truth. In fact, one of the wisest things you can ever, that you can ever say is, I don't know it all yet. I need to keep listening. The Apostle Paul is saying that the person that comes across to you, and this is a great discernment for you, the teacher that comes across to you like they know it all, they got everything tied up together, it can be at a sales convention, it can be in your own business, someone that's communicating constantly, man, I got it all together, I know it all, this is the way you do it, and they've got all kinds of very simple directives to help you to, ex- everything from weight loss to, to what you do in your education, watch out, because they don't really know. What you want to listen to is their humility in the teaching, is their heart in the teaching. Is it filled with self or is it filled with openness to to something that's far beyond self, the living God? And Paul's words to us can give you great discernment in knowing who you should follow in your life and who you should not. Because the one that thinks they know doesn't really know yet as they should know. But it says, but the man who loves God is known by God. You see, what Paul is saying is that the goal of this thing is not knowledge about God. It is relationship with God. It is being close with God. Our reason together to be here today is that when you sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. Did you let your heart say that? Did you? That's so important. That's, that'll change your worship time with your, with your family of believers. If you learn to, to let your heart, that when you sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift your heart, you ask yourself, Lord, do I mean that now? And you let the Spirit of God, that invisible presence of God, begin to cause your heart. Maybe your heart needs to be thawed this morning. Maybe it's become cold. It's become brittle. It's become scarred. And that's, that you say, Dave, why is that important? Because that's what's going to hold your marriage together. You see, when I start to get cold, when I start to get away from God, when I get to start thinking about Dave and what Dave's needs are and what Dave wants to do, you know what? I get angry with Mary. And I get estranged from Mary. And as I'm estranged from God and I'm not really relating to God, I'm also estranged from Mary and the kids as well. That's the way it works. Because the ultimate oneness is in him. And it always works like this. If you cut off this oneness with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you cut off your oneness with other people. And that's what Paul is so concerned about among the Corinthians. You see, if you're not focused on this oneness with God, if you're not filled with your devotion to him, then you're out of tune with your fellow believers. And you might be full of spiritual knowledge. I've known people that know the Bible better than I do, but there's no heart. There's no real worship. There's no connectedness with God. And I see them tear their families apart because they just never give of themselves and they never let their children into those innermost recesses of their being. There's, not what we, there's, not, there's no closeness. 
And it becomes because they focus on knowledge instead of letting love build them up. So with that as a warning, the Apostle Paul began to tell them about some knowledge that's really important that needs to issue in the way that we love one another. Look what he says in verse, verse 4. So then, meanwhile, back to the subject. See, Paul liked to give the virgin. That's why I love Paul, because he preaches just kind of the way I teach. He kind of goes on a rabbit trail, but it, but it always comes back together. And notice what he says here. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. That's a very important statement. I want you to know that in the world, there is no such thing as an idol. In just one stroke of his pen, the Apostle Paul said that the gods of Babylon, the gods of Egypt, the gods of Canaan were not real. They were all imaginary. Now, to us, that might not be a very powerful statement, but boy, in the first century world, with Roman gods and Greek gods and all the competition, and with a small fledgling group saying, Hear, O Israel, hear, believer, there is only one God. It's the God of the Bible. And all the idols are false. With one stroke of his pen, Paul eliminated all the competition. And you need to add yourself in your own heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the only real God that's ultimately there is the God of the Bible? Because in our society today, there's all kinds of false gods. In fact, Shirley MacLaine is saying that all of you are gods. Man, you talk about plurality of, of gods again. Shirley is saying that all of you are gods. You're, you're all divine. Man, that, what a mess that's going to be. That's even worse than the ancient world. Hinduism is coming back on strong with, like a gangbusters. And in Hinduism, there's all kinds of gods. There's, there's, the, there, the, there's all different kinds of, of fertility movements and back and forth, the maleness and the femaleness principle. And you get it in all kinds of ways in the modern world. Polytheism is back and Paul is saying, no, there's only one God. All the idols are false. But I want you to say, see something else. Notice Paul goes on and says something about the idols. But, he says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father. Now, I want you to look at verse 5 carefully. Even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now, I want you to understand this. Paul is saying that Marduk of Babylon, the idol, is nothing. It's a piece of wood. In fact, Isaiah would mock it. It's a piece of wood that's been overlaid with gold. And what the Apostle Paul and what the prophets of the Old Testament said is that this is just a thing. It's nothing. You don't need to be afraid of it. It can't get you. It can't zap you. That idol is nothing. When the Babylonians say, man, Marduk is Lord, the Israelite and the New Testament believer can say, no, that's not true. Marduk is the figment of your imagination. When you kids in school study about the Greek and Roman pantheon and you study about Venus and all the different gods, gods of the ancient world, what Paul is saying is it's all just pretend. It's just like stories that man made up and all that kind of like the soap opera of the gods and goddesses is all just an imaginary story. But he also said something else that you need to understand. It's very important. He said, but even if there are so-called gods, small g, and even if there are so-called rulers, small r, and he says something absolutely important. Later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul warns the Corinthians. He says, the food sacrificed to the idols It's fine, you can eat it if it doesn't hurt someone's conscience. But he says this, don't go to an idol temple and worship and eat the food and take part in idolatrous feasts. And he says this, because the idol is nothing, but behind the idol there are small g gods and there are small r rulers 
that are definitely real and definitely there. You say, Dave, what in the world is the Apostle Paul talking about? The Apostle Paul is making this statement. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is only one ultimate divine being. He is in a class by himself. No one else is in the ring with him. No one else compares to him. He is in, he is one of a kind. That's what it means that we are monotheists. We worship one God. But the Bible also reveals that not divine, but supernatural, powerful, mighty beings, not God, not in his class, but it talks about the fact that there's angelic beings. And those angelic beings are the servants of God. And they are much more powerful than we are. And they're much, more, uh, they're much more insightful than we are. And much more able to do things than we are in many ways. They are supernatural beings. Not God. But they are in a class distinct from him. Not equal to him at all. But they are more powerful than us as human beings. And so in God's revelation of, of the hierarchy right now, you have the almighty God in a class by himself. Then you have this realm of angelic beings. And then you have a realm of human beings like us. Now the scripture says this, that there are good angels that take care of you. It talks about, you know, uh, Hebrews talks about the fact that there are ministering spirits. When we studied that book together, we studied that. That they, that they will take care of you and they will protect you. But you know what? The Bible also teaches that there are demonic beings. There are fallen angels. There are those, like in Genesis 6, and there are those that fell with Satan when he chose to make himself like God and he rebelled against God. The Bible teaches that there are, there are angelic beings that fell. And they join the satanic forces. And I've got news for you. They're more than you can handle. And it's very, very important to understand this. You can sin just by your lonesome. You can sin just because you have a human nature that you inherited in Adam that can make you do the wrong thing. So you can't blame your sin on something that's bigger than yourself. But I want you to know something very important. If you choose not to worship this week the true God as your one, if you choose not to make him the center of your heart, if you choose not to be devoted to him, if you choose not to praise him, then you begin to walk out into enemy territory. You begin to walk out into, into a zone that's incredibly, where you are incredibly vulnerable. And it's not very popular to think about that in the modern world, but it, the Bible still teaches it. The scripture talks about being in fellowship with God, in close with a family of believers, in intimacy with him. And then it talks about walking out on the outside and being vulnerable to that roaring lion that goes about seeking whom he may devour. So what can happen in my marriage? Right now, I can be devoted to Mary, and I can be committed to her, and I can be filled with love for her. And after 25 years, I can be more devoted to her than ever. But this week, I can begin to not respond with my heart to the oneness of God. He can stop being the one, and I can start living for men. I'm 45, and I've only got maybe 20 really good years left before all my teeth fall out, and my legs turn into bad knees and, and man well, all my hair falls out and it all turns gray and man I'm not sure I've gotten the most out of life yet and, and I'm not sure man I've been a father for a long time and I've been taking care of these kids and man I'm getting tired and man I've served this church family all this time and what do I get out of it but a bunch of cranky children and, and man I just think I just don't like this anymore I think I'm just going to live for me I'm out of here that can happen and I can say, no, there's another God that's going to satisfy me. And I want you to know something. As soon as you begin to think like that, as soon as you begin to give into those thoughts and you don't deal with them honestly and you don't run back to God, you begin to walk into enemy territory. And the demonic beings can come in. 
And they can begin to lie in your mind. And they can begin to deceive you. And I, I just plead, I plead with you as, their, as your pastor. You are not strong enough to handle it. And either am I. That's why you need what I'm doing with you. It's why we, you need regularly to open up this book. And study it together and listen to its voice. Because I want you to have what the Lord's given to us in our family. I want your sons to be able to lead in worship and be able to tell you that they love God. To be able to look at you in the eye and say, I love you, Dad, and I love you, Mom. And I'm devoted to the same Christ that you are. I want you to have that joy. And you can lose it. And so can I. It's very serious what we're talking about. This oneness of devotion to God and being wary of the demonic beings that are out there. Like I mentioned to you earlier, I just got a call last night. Another marriage in our church. Looks like it's caving in. This isn't outside somewhere. This is right here. It's chaos. It's ruin. You begin to walk into a world saying, other things will meet my need. And I want you to know God delights in forgiving. He delights in putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. But I want you to understand today, this doesn't happen by magic. It doesn't just suddenly happen. You just stopped showing up here. You just stop reading your Bible. You just stop responding to God. And I'm not talking about mechanically going through stuff. I mean, you stop responding from your heart to the living God. It's a teenager that comes on Sunday morning and, and says all the right words, but that's not where their heart is. That's the danger zone. Just like that, you can be immoral. It happens all the time. It's an adult that, that maybe is even a leader in the church, but... They're just not spending any time in the Word of God. They haven't read the Bible during Monday through Friday in several months. And their hearts start to become cold and hard. And a different spirit begins to permeate their home. And Paul is warning us, there are small L lords. There are small G gods. There are small R rulers that can begin to take over your life. And they can eventually enslave you where it seems like you don't even have the choice. And I want to plead with you to have a tender heart towards the voice of the Holy Spirit within you. Respond early. Respond immediately when your heart begins to harden. Respond immediately when you start to lose the warmth. And spend some time in the scriptures and in relationship with fellow believers so your heart can begin to beat with him again and respond to him. This is very serious. Paul says this, there are so-called gods, there are so-called lords, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, and we close with this, yet for us, and I I would pray this would be, this statement would be made for all of us, yet for us, and can Paul say that for you? Yet for us, there is but one God. That's what we've been learning about today, the unity of God. For us, there is one God. And that one God is the Father from whom all things came into being. We close today and say, Dave, why do you want us to worship God? Why do you want us to respond with our hearts to God? Because he's the one. All the advertising says, I'm number one. None of us can raise your hand. Michael, Jordan, nobody. Nike, they are not number one. He is. You say, why is that? Because he's the source of all things. I didn't create myself. I didn't bring myself into existence. I am here today speaking to you as pure gift. It's a pure gift. Because God gave me life. I'm totally and completely, absolutely dependent on him. Everything I have is him. It's, a, it's source is in him. That's why I need to worship him. 
And it's only by resting in that source that you're going to make it into eternity. It's only by receiving the gift that he gives us as the source of life and the gift of his son and what he did for us on the Calvary, what he did for us on the resurrection. It's only as you depend upon him that you're going to make it home. But I want you to see something else. There is one God, and he is our Father. One of the major things that the Lord has taught us in our church is that you can call God your Abba, your Daddy. In fact, all over the country, as we've mentioned on the radio, there's all kinds of response to that. It's almost like, a, 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 just like, how in the world can you be that close to God? The only reason we can say it is because Jesus taught us that, that we can be draw, brought near the Father through him so that the Spirit within us causes us to cry out, Abba. In Aramaic, the word daddy, my intimate father, the personal father. But I want you to see something else as we close. Because God is one. God has a unity. But as the Old Testament prepared the way with little insinuations, little cues, little, little clues along the way, like in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. Let us make man. What's the plural? In Genesis chapter 6, you know, God says it grieved him that he had made man. And, and then he, he converses like he converses among himself. In the Old Testament, there's strange figures of an angel of Yahweh that suddenly appears. And, and he's God and he's able to eat with, like you have Abraham eating with God. And yet you also have statements where, where no one has ever seen God at, at any time. And how do you get all this together? At one time, God has a transcendent spirit. No one's ever seen him. And then they're eating dinner with him and, and, and visibly being with him. How can it all go together? And then there's a, a stress upon the Spirit of God, the word of his mouth that goes out. And, and who is the Spirit? And is it just a power? Is it just an influence? And the Old Testament leaves all those questions unanswered. But as we're going to go on the next time we get together, the New Testament begins to present and push us towards a whole new view of God. The New Testament opens up the door to the divine being in an incredible way. And it says God is not just one. He is three in one. You see, there is God, Elohim, the Father, who is the source of all things. But there is one Lord, Jehovah. The word Lord there would be like Jehovah, one Yahweh. And it says this is, look what it says. This one Lord is none other than Jesus, the Messiah, through whom and all things came and through whom we live. You see, as we close today, what the scripture is saying, that there's only one God. There's only one being of God. But in that one being of God, we know from what Paul just told us that there are at least two persons, two individuals who can think, feel, and decide. There is God the Father, the source of all things. But there is also God the Son, who was the agent God the Son is always the one that acts out and does the actions that God the Father decrees. It says in the book of John that everything he sees the Father doing, the Son does. He fleshes out for us the work and the will and the word of the Father. And so we worship today as believers God the Father, that ultimate transcendent spirit, that ultimate one in all the universe who's the source of all things. But in the divine being, there's also God the Son. Who is someone that in your own mind that you can, you can picture one day, you'll be able to grab a hold of him. You'll be able to see the print in his hands. You'll be able to f- be able to look at the wound in his side. You'll be able to grab a hold of him and you'll be able to know that he's there. Just like the disciples did when he rose again from the dead. And get, you know what? He is God as well. Fully God. Incredible reality. And we're going to learn as we go on the next time we're together, there's also a spirit that dwells in your heart. God, the third person of the Trinity, if you receive Jesus as your Savior, dwells in your heart. And you know what the scripture is saying? You say, well, Dave, that's really heady stuff, the Trinity. What difference does it make? We're going to find out it makes a lot of difference. 
In Judaism, you worship one God. No God the Son, no God the Holy Spirit. Just one God. As the years have gone by in Judaism, he becomes a very remote God, a very distant God, a very impersonal God. And Judaism becomes something very different from biblical Christianity that we're talking about today. I'm not putting a Jew down culturally. I'm just saying spiritually, it's a totally different idea to worship this one ultimate transcendent being. And someone that worships, worships a triune of persons. In Islam, in Islam, the heartbeat of Islam is Allah alone is God and Muhammad is his prophet. I want you to know something. The Allah of Islam is not the God that I've called you to worship today. Allah is a distant God. A God who doesn't enter into intimacy with people. He's not a God who expresses his love to them. The faith, impersonal forces control, control people. Does that make a difference? Yes, it does. It makes a big difference. I remember when the prime minister of Egypt, they, they said, aren't you scared you could be killed? Shouldn't you do something about it? No. If the fates decree for me to be killed, I'll be killed. And he was. Because in, in Islam, the fates control. It's not a personal relationship with God. But you know what we're learning? We're going to be learning further. Our ultimate object of worship is a triunity of relationship. Why should Mary and I stay together in our marriage? Why should those of you that are married stay together in your marriage? Because we're going to find out your marriage reflects, it's the greatest illustration there is of what the Trinity is. The reason Mary and I need to stay together is if we don't, then instead of being a magnet that draws people to the love relationship of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, then we become an object lesson that can drive people away. If Mary and I break up, rather than it being a witness throughout this area that there's a triune God that expresses love and closeness and intimacy and oneness, we will declare Christ doesn't work. God the Father's love is insufficient. That's why it's important. That's why it's such a struggle. That's why your marriage is the same thing. Because we worship a God who has intimacy and fellowship right within itself. Why do you need to learn to get along? Why do you need to learn to be together? Why do you need to not just stay home and live by yourself and watch TV? Because you worship a triune God. And he is one that enjoys God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit enjoy love together. And we are to reflect that. And Jesus said in John 17, I want you to have the same oneness together that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have in themselves. You see, what I want to do, I, I want to catch you up into the adventure that Jesus Christ calls you to enter into mirroring, to mirroring the divine love, the divine intimacy. That's why it's such a struggle. But you can do it. Here, O Israel, here are my fellow believers. Is he the one? Do you really believe he's the one? And do you believe that he is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit forever united into a perfect unity of love? If you do, your families can reflect that same intimacy. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.